Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Baseball pitchers are always looking for an edge, especially when it comes to today's game where baseball stadiums can barely hold long fly balls. Batters are hitting home runs at an incredible rate. There was a time, however, when pitchers ruled the roost. They pitched inside, the mound was higher than it is today, and all sorts of pitches, including the spitball, were allowed to be thrown. However, in 1920, the spitball was outlawed, but each team was allowed to designate two pitchers who would be allowed to use it legally until said pitchers retired from the game. The last man standing was Burley Grimes, and when he retired after the 1934 season, the spitball was no longer legally allowed in the game of baseball. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the terrific career of Baseball Hall of Famer Burley Grimes. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you can join us as we take a look back at some of Sports Forgotten Heroes. And today... A familiar name to many, but still, a name of which many might not know much about when it comes to his career, Burley Grimes. A terrific pitcher who played for the likes of the Pittsburgh Pirates, Brooklyn Dodgers, St. Louis Cardinals, and several other teams as well. Grimes was one of the game's better spitball pitchers, was allowed to keep throwing it after the pitch was outlawed in 1920. But baseball instituted a grandfather clause and allowed two players per team who threw the spitball to continue throwing the pitch even though it had been outlawed. And Grimes, well, he took full advantage of it, winning 270 games during his 19-year career which eventually took him to Cooperstown, New York, and the Baseball Hall of Fame. Joining us on this edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes will be Joe Neese. Now, Joe might be familiar to some of you as he was our guest on episode 43, where we discussed the terrific football career of Gus DeRay. Joe wrote a terrific book about Grimes, Burley Grimes, baseball's last legal spitballer and he'll be here as we'll go in depth about a guy who pitched 300 innings a year would throw 30 plus complete games a year and had a demeanor that earned the reputation as one of baseball's fiercest competitors before we get there however just a few reminders you can follow sports forgotten heroes on twitter at sports f heroes check out our instagram sports forgotten heroes look for our page on facebook or check out our website sportsfh.com this is where you can discover more about the forgotten heroes we talk about Learn more about our guests, see who else we have on the docket for future episodes, and it's where you can send us questions, comments, or suggest forgotten heroes of your own for future episodes. Again, that's sportsfh.com. Now, let's turn our attention to Burley Grimes with our guest, Joe Neitz. Joe, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. How you doing? I'm doing well, Warren. Good to speak with you again. Awesome. Today, we're going to talk baseball instead of football, and we're going to talk about Burley Grimes. 
So I guess my first question is, what interests you so much that you wanted to write a book about Burley Grimes? My interest came from that his first professional stop in baseball was in my hometown, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And so that's where I really got rolling with it. I had kind of considered doing a longer, you know, 6,000, 8,000 word article on him. And then the more I got into it, the more I realized that, uh, boy, he'd be a great subject for a, for a book. Sure. What a fascinating story. And, you know, I think we need to start with the spitball that Burley was the last pitcher allowed to throw a spitball in the major leagues legally. So why don't we start with that? Why don't you educate our listeners a little on exactly what a spitball is? I mean, it's not as if you just spit on the ball and throw it. It's a lot more intricate than that. Yes, yeah, and that's what Grimes always said. He could teach someone in a few minutes, but the years to master. And Grimes had seen it, oh boy, he must, I, don't, I can't remember if, if he was nine or 10 years old, he saw a pitcher throwing it over in, in Minneapolis uh, for the Millers. And he was kind of taken with it. And Grimes, you know, he didn't chew tobacco or anything like that. He actually chewed the bark of a slippery elm tree. Mm-hmm. And that's how he got the uh, lubricant to throw his spitball. And, you know, it's a, like you said, it's very, a very intricate pitch. And so, you know, it's hand placement and Grimes threw it. He likened it to squeezing a watermelon seed, hmm. a lot of pressure put on, put on his nails. So he kind of needed those finely manicured. And, um, you know, it was, it was his out pitch. I, you know, I, I don't think he threw it as much as you would think, but pretty much between every pitch, he was putting his glove in his hand up to his mouth to kind of give the batter, you know, get in the batter's head that is he going to throw it this time or not? What kind of effect on the ball did such a substance have? I mean, you even wrote that at first it can look like a knuckleball. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of that force that he threw it with, that just that squeezing out initially kind of had that, freezing of a knuckleball and then it would dart or dive depending on finger placement and how it was thrown. Mm-hmm. Again, tell us a little bit about the substance that he used and how, I don't know if it was difficult to get, but it surely wasn't handy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's pretty, of what I gather, it was a pretty abundant here in Wisconsin. Uh, when he was growing up, he got the fresh stuff, the slippery elm. Uh, when he got to the majors, he kind of had to, to work with what he could, and he got it out of uh, medicine medicine stores. It's used for stomach ailments. Um, and and kind of the funny thing is that he would get sick from it as well. And so um, he, he whenever he could, he'd have his, his dad ship him a fresh batch, or when he was in the World Series, his dad came down to uh, St. Louis and brought him some fresh slippery elm from western Wisconsin to uh, to help him with his pitching. Mm-hmm. Why was he allowed to continue throwing the spitball after it was outlawed? Yeah, so it started when he was with the Pirates, actually. That was the first team he was with. He was with seven teams, a rarity at that time, the early, you know, that early decades of the 1900s for someone to, to hop from team to team. And so Barney Dreyfus was the Pirates' owner, and he was making a motion to do away with all the trick pitches and spitballs were lumped into that, you know, shine balls and people were scuffing up the ball with bottle caps and all this stuff. And so Dreyfus was making this movement to do away with those pitches and the spitball was lumped into it. And so um, that kind of led to him being traded. He didn't want to uh, be sent to the minor leagues as Dreyfus encouraged him to in 1917 to go down to the minors and learn a different pitch. And so, mm-hmm. He was traded over to Brooklyn, and a couple of years later, um, Dreyfus had finally gotten the other owners to go through with this. And so, the nineteen before the nineteen twenty season, they said each team can allot two pitchers to throw the spitball for the duration of the twenty season, and then after that, you had to do something else. And so, they went through the twenty season, and Grimes ended up leading Brooklyn to the World Series against Cleveland Indians, and Grimes was Brooklyn's top pitcher. Stan Kowaleski was the Indians' top pitcher, and they are both spitballers. 
And so the spitball kind of took center stage of the World Series. Uh, Brooklyn lost to Cleveland. But after that, the owners kind of stepped back and made a little amendment there. And they said, okay, each team can allot two pitchers to use the spitball spitball for the duration of their career. Hmm. And some teams like Pittsburgh, Dreyfus's, you know, that Dreyfus was the owner of, they didn't, they didn't nominate anyone, but Brooklyn did nominate two people. Grimes was one of them. And uh, when he retired in 1934, he was the last of the legal spitballers. If Grimes had been, I don't know if you know the answer to this. If Grimes had been traded to a team that already had two guys designated that could throw the spitball, would Grimes or I guess, would the team be allowed to have three guys throw the spitball? I don't know if you know the answer to that. Well, that's a, that's a good question, Warren. I haven't thought of that before. I, I think that Grimes was in the, he had started to really take a turn in 18, had a really good season for Brooklyn. 19 was cut short because of his, because of an injury in 20, he was of course Brooklyn's best pitcher. So, you know, I don't know if he was on another team and there were two better spitballers than him. What would have come of it? Uh, he probably would have, uh, Argued his way to another team, maybe, and uh, <laughs> gotten uh, gotten their nomination. Let's go back to the beginning. Burley's introduction to baseball isn't that different than it is for many youngsters, I guess. He played on yeah. highly competitive traveling teams. The only difference is, at least the way I read it in your book, is that these teams had huge followings. So tell yes. us about how the youth teams that Burley played on and how big the crowds were that came out to see them play. Yeah, there was such interest in in baseball that it, they had formed a um, a team for 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds um, that Grimes was on, which I, I, I gather was, might have been a rarity at the time, you know, in the in the early 1900s there for that first decade for a team of nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds to have a huge following. And they had as big a following as the town team that his dad coached. And, and uh, Burley was a pitcher on those teams and they traveled to areas and there was hundreds of people that were watching, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds play. And uh, Grimes eventually ended up playing a couple years of high school ball. Um, he dropped out of high school after his sophomore year because his dad needed him on the farm, and he would have had to transfer to a school where there was a large, you know, pretty lengthy commute. And then he ended up throwing for the uh, the for Clear Lake. He's from Clear Lake, Wisconsin, for the uh, the town ball team there that his dad managed. Started on that when he was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like you sort of just alluded to, he knew that playing baseball and earning a living as a ball player was a lot better than going into the family business. So tell us a little bit about his family and farming and lumberjacking and then the importance of baseball. Yes, yeah, baseball was a a huge part of the Grimes family. Um, Their day job was farming. Uh, when Burley retired, or uh, when he dropped out of uh, high school, he started working as a lumberjack in the winters. And so, um, but baseball was always a huge part of the family uh, for for Nick, his dad, and Burley, and his brother Shirley as well, who some say was a better pitcher than Burley. I I, th- I don't know if that's true or not. I think sometimes people like to say that stuff, but uh, Shirley yeah. was a, a pretty big guy, was was substantially larger than Burley was, and, and pitched a couple years in minor league ball in, on the East Coast, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and Shirley, very interesting spelling to his name, just like Burley is a very interesting name. What is the derivation of Burley? Where where does such a name come from? Oh, if I remember correctly, it was his mom was was into reading about uh, royalty, uh, English royalty, and Lord Burley was one of the people that she was reading about when around the time that Burley was born, and that's where he got his name from. So he wanted to play um, professionally. And he had to actually talk his way onto some minor league ball clubs. Can you tell us anything about his journey through the minors, places like Chattanooga and Birmingham, and then how he was finally discovered? Sure, yeah. And so he, in uh, 
1911, he had gone to Minneapolis, talked to Mike Kelly, uh, owner or uh, manager of the Minneapolis Millers at that time. Uh, and he's, you know, he'd sent Burley home and then Burley came back the next year and, and Kelly once again turned him away and said, you know, there's actually a team in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, uh, the Minnesota, Wisconsin league, um, Russ Bailey's their manager. Why don't you go down there and try out? And so Burley went over to Eau Claire and, uh, tried out and didn't make the team initially. And so he, he kind of begged his way, uh, with Bailey and said, you know, can you at least, can I at least you know, be a part of the team in some way. And so Burley started out as kind of a, a manager of some sort of equipment manager, shagging balls, shining shoes. And so he accompanied them on their first road trip trip to uh, Rochester. I think it was Minnesota. And for whatever, a turn of events, Burley needed to get into the game. There was a, an injury and I think someone was ejected. And so Burley ended up getting into this game and ended up pitching at some point. And so his, uh, the manager uh, came to him and said, Hey, we'll offer you a contract and Burley accepted instead of taking a, a, a weekly payment. He took a monthly payment before the month had expired. The league had folded and Burley had no money. <laughs> Interesting. And, and so he was kind of, he was, and so he was kind of, you know, you know, spent the last two months, have nothing to show for it. And so uh, Bailey said, Hey, I, I know there's a, a July 4th doubleheader coming up in, in Austin, Minnesota, and they need a pitcher. I'll pay your way over there, see what happens. And so Burley goes over there, uh, wins his mound start, and then ends up playing the outfield. Burley was a very good hitter as well and um, ends up having some key hits. And as he's going to the train station, the uh, people who run the team say, hey, you know, if you want to uh, sign with us for the rest of the season, you can run the pool hall when we're not playing ball. So Burley does helps them to the Southern Minnesota League title, and he gets a little eyeball, a little few eyeballs on him from that. He ends up going to uh, Otumwa, Iowa, the next year. Has a real fast start there. Wins his first five or six decisions. Uh, some from the Tigers, a uh, few teams are, are seeing, or you know, have, have caught on to him, and the Tigers send him to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Plays for the Chattanooga Lookouts there. And so that's it. We're kind of the start of, of who his on-field persona is up until this point, he'd kind of been, you know, I, I'd actually read things, you know, description game descriptions where he played ball with a big smile on his face. And that kind of changed when he played under kid Elberfeld, a uh, former major leaguer with Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. And so he, he uh, has a so-so season there. Um, you know, he goes home and, you know, the next year he actually in the off season, he almost, dies in a, a lumber lumbering accident. Um, he's, he was, uh, driving a, a load of lumber down a hill an embankment and hits a stump that was covered in snow. And uh, this load of lumber comes rolling at him and he's able to get off of the sled in time, but he breaks his left arm, his non throwing arm. And that's enough to kind of, it happened in February and he needed to be, you know, in, in the South there a couple months, you know, a couple weeks later, and it was enough to kind of impede his progress. And in 1914, he ends up going to a lower league, the Virginia Virginia State League, and and ends up um, actually leading his team and wins, and as well as batting and, and wins the batting title too. Um, and so wow. he plays well enough. And then um, Birmingham Barons signed him in 1915. Um, thinks he's going to get called up, but he gets in this big fight in 15 and in August, he gets suspended. So he doesn't get called up in September, goes back to Birmingham on 16, finally gets called up by the pirates in September. And, uh, his, he's off and running in his career from there. How did he end up with the pirates? Because it was the tigers. I thought that grabbed him first, but then the lumberjacking accident happened. So did the tigers give up on him too soon? And how did he end up with Pittsburgh? Well, he had had some, during spring training, Birmingham had um, played against the Pirates, and there was some association with Birmingham there. And so the Pirates had kept an eye on him, and uh, Honus Wagner, of all people, had had said, you know, you got to keep an eye on this kid, he's going to do something. And lo and behold, uh, a couple years later, he's playing with Pittsburgh. Yeah, so he starts his career with the Pirates, and unfortunately, this was just as the Pirates were transitioning from one of baseball's best to one of baseball's worst. 
even the great Honus Wagner, he was no longer playing like Honus Wagner. And even though he pitched pretty well, Grimes's record didn't reflect that, especially his second and last year with Pittsburgh when he yeah. went three and 16. And I find that simply remarkable that a guy who yep. goes three and 16 ends up in the hall of fame. How bad were those pirate teams? And tell us about his relationship with his last manager with Pittsburgh, Hugo Bedzik, who, by the way, never played baseball. Yeah, Bedzik. Uh, so yeah, it was really an abysmal season. You know, he had that he had that real good start in '16, and they kind of thought he was going to be a cornerstone to the staff, along with uh, left-hander Wilbur Cooper. And uh, '17 was just a horrible year for the Pirates. They went through like three different managers, including uh, Wagner, who lasted all of three or four games mm-hmm. as manager mid-season before Bedzik took over. And Bedzik was a former football player uh, for University of Chicago. Um, and so Grimes, as you said, just had a horrible season. He lost 13 games in a row at one point. And there was a train ride where Grimes was kind of complaining about his, his uh, place on the team, despite losing 13 games in a row. And Bedzik overheard this, uh, and Grimes who, you know, it's about five ten, you know, buck 90 and, uh, uh, Bedzek was well over six feet, you know, had at least 50 pounds on Grimes. That didn't stop Grimes from uh, picking a fight with Bedzek. And they had this big knockdown drag out fight on the, the train. And um, Be- uh, Grimes held his own against Bedzek. And uh, he did end up getting to pitch a few more games, which uh, didn't go well for, for Grimes. Uh, you know, it bled over into the next season when I think he lost 16, 17 in a row, you know, mm. total between the two seasons. But, uh, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, his owner, Dreyfus, the Pirates owner, called him in there and said that at season's end, hey, you need to learn a different pitch. And Grimes refused, and he ended up being traded to uh, Brooklyn with, for, amongst other people, Casey Stengel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And after he's traded to Brooklyn, even Bedzik said that Brooklyn was getting a heck of a pitcher as long as he could contain his temper. Yep, that's something that kind of plagued Grimes throughout his career. His temper did get the best of him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as I said, you know, when you're going to seven different teams at that point in baseball history, you know, it's, something's going on there. Now, some said he was a throw-in to the trade that took him from Pittsburgh to Brooklyn. But I think his 19-9 record said otherwise. Talk about that first year with Brooklyn. While he went 19-9, it certainly wasn't a smooth season for anyone, mostly because of the World War. Yeah, and and Brooklyn, who were then, you know, a bunch of different names. Robbins is what I think I refer to them most mm-hmm. after their manager, Wilbert Robinson. Yeah, it was a heck of a season for them, and they were one of the most hard hit by World War One and Grimes who served in the Navy Reserve at uh, at some point in July, I think of that year. Him and Rue Marquard were in Chicago, and they ended up signing for the signing up for the Naval Reserves. Um, Grimes was the most consistent pitcher for them at that season. And, um, you know, it, it didn't start out that well, though. You know, he was still still uh, couldn't find his way with the spitball. Um, Robinson, who had was renowned as a uh, person who worked with pitchers, a former catcher, Robert, Wilbert Robinson was, um, kind of worked on him with the uh, nickel curve or the, the slider, nickel curve as it was called then. And that kind of added to Grimes' repertoire. He finally found his way with the spitball. And uh, he was going to be caught, actually, in spring training. And Robinson spoke up on his behalf. And uh, kind of the rest is history with that season. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know that they were the Dodgers and then became the Robins before becoming the Dodgers again. Why, Why did they call themselves the Robins? I get it that that their manager, you know, his last name was Robinson, but but why name the team after him? Enlighten us a little there. Oh, it seemed it was kind of a a tradition in Brooklyn. There was their previous manager, they seemed to uh name them after, you know, give them alternate nicknames uh to having to do with their manager and for whatever reason, uh the Robins stuck and uh 
they referred to them on and off for for a number of years after that until finally becoming the Dodgers and full time in the you know the thirties I think forties. So Burley's second season in Brooklyn ended somewhat prematurely. But before we get to the reason why, first. Talk about the term you used when describing Burley, ferocious. He really didn't like that, did he? No, you know, as combative as a person he was, you know, it was kind of an on-field persona at times. And I think he played into that, too. He liked to uh, play into that. Uh, Amongst other things, he always had a 5 o'clock shadow when he pitched. And some people thought that was kind of to be intimidate as an intimidate part of intimidation, but it was actually because of the slippery elm that irritated his skin so much. He needed a little barrier there, but, um, you know, he, he liked to intimidate people and that was part of his, uh, his game plan. Like you said, he was, he liked to intimidate people. He was ferocious on the mound and that yeah. demeanor ultimately led to, I guess an ugly incident with Frankie Frisch, and that ended Burley's season. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, Grimes had been pitching Frisch inside uh, quite a bit, and there was a play at first base where Grimes was covering, and and Frisch uh, took to uh, Burley's ankle there, and you know severed, nearly severed his Achilles, Grimes' Achilles tendon, uh, ending his 1919 season uh, a little bit early. And what about his ferociousness? Did that stick with him throughout his career? And if so, how did it affect his game? Did it help him? Did it hurt him? Talk about that a little bit more. His demeanor yeah, on the I, I think like, Yeah, I think I think like any player that has you know, their emotions like that, it it can it can help at times but it also hurt and you know, by the time that Grimes was out of Brooklyn in twenty six, there was very few teammates that he uh, associated with even as and he fought with as I say you know fans umpires opponents his own team and uh, you know I, I his demeanor helped him at, at times but you know I, I think it, it hurt him as well so was he that way away from the game he was uh, you know I I, I spoke with uh, some members of the Minneapolis Saber group and they were they saw they were one of the last groups to meet with Burley before he passed away in December of 85 and they said he was getting you know they went and saw him I think the summer before he passed and he was uh just as animated as ever he was swearing about some ball player <laughs> and uh you know so I I don't think he ever lost his edge there you know he pitched over 300 innings five times in his career. Of course, today we marvel at a guy who pitches over 200 innings. I loved Burley's response to your question to him about pitching 300 innings a year. He said that was nothing compared to the guys who pitched before him and would throw 400 innings a year. I mean, the game was different then. Talk about that. Uh, how? I mean, complete games. You were expected to pitch complete games, and sometimes not only did he pitch a complete game, he would pitch 15, 16, 17 innings. I mean, the thought of that today is mind-boggling. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, You know, looking at some of his his complete games he pitched, I mean, you know, in 21 he threw 30 complete games, 23, 30. 2430 I mean it's it's crazy and I I always you know it's kind of I I of course I get the question do I think he was a hall of famer and you look at his stats in the 20s and I mean it's just they're mind-boggling the amount amount of games he threw and innings he pitched and yeah I just yeah it's crazy the the amount of games he started and finished. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the 1920 season for a moment. I think even though he won 23 games, it had to be one of the most disappointing of his career is he and the Robins lost to the Cleveland Indians in the World Series. In fact, in your book, you said that Grimes was still bitter about the series decades later. And Charles Ebbets, owner of the Robins, or the Dodgers, 
also played a role in giving Cleveland an advantage in the series. What happened? Well, if I uh, jog my memory correctly, it was they let did they start the game in they started the series in Cleveland. If I'm correct, they moved it there, and they also that was the year that Chat, Ray Chapman was killed. Uh, Cleveland shortstop was killed mm-hmm. uh, by a by a pitch, and so Grimes had, or um, Ebbets had let um, was it Sewell? I think I can't remember their shortstop's name now. Cleveland shortstop, but they mm-hmm. they let a guy play for them that maybe shouldn't have eligibility wise. And then they started the series in um, in Cleveland as well, when they could have started it in Brooklyn, giving Cleveland advantage. And, and didn't, didn't Burley overhear or was he asked a question many years later about the series and like the guys who asked him the question didn't know that that was Burley Grimes. Uh, I mean, talk about that. Yes, yeah, it's, that's, oh, that's a wonderful story, isn't it? Yeah, about uh, he was, boy, he was, it was decades later in the probably the seventies. You know, half a dec, half a century later, he's fishing in in northern Wisconsin, and there happens to be a a, a trivia question up on on the uh, the board there in the the bait shop that he goes into about who who gave up the first grand slam in world series history and the guys, you know, see Burley in there and like, Oh, he'll, he'll know who, who it was not knowing that he was the one who gave up the grand slam. (laughs) And so they ask him and he says, uh, one Burley, Burley, a Grimes and just exits the, uh, exits the shop without seeing their reaction. (laughs) What kind of person was Burley Grimes? I mean, we talked about how he was a ferocious person on the field. Was he an honest person? Was he a good person? How would you characterize him? Of what I gather, he was. Um, There were some incidents where, you know, in business dealings, you know, he he made money in oil in Ohio and had a large farm in in, um, Missouri. And you're not always going to make people happy when you're in business dealings. Um, I was fortunate enough to work closely with uh, a man by the name of Charles Clark, who um, in Burley's hometown at Clear Lake, who was kind of the son that Burley never had, him and his and Chuck's wife, Ardith, um, Burley really took to them. And so I, I worked closely with Chuck on, on the, on, on the, on the book with him. And so, you know, I got a lot of insights into Burley, of course, positive recollections from Chuck, but, uh, of what I gather, you know, your professional athletes are competitive people, whether it's on the field or off the field. And so that bleeds into business dealing sometimes, but of what I gather, he was a decent man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason I ask that is because of the issues surrounding the barnstorming trip to Cuba. Yes. Yeah, where the where the with the money. Yeah. With, uh, with yeah. Otto, yeah. Where he yeah, where yeah, and so and uh, after the twenty one season, Grimes led a barnstorming tour, and. Um, Probably the biggest thing, the biggest uh, thing that um, really irked his teammates was they went back to Austin, Minnesota, for a, a kind of a, a welcome home for Burley. And there's a, you know, they got a huge, he got a, you know, really big welcome home, and his wife got some stuff, and they took this huge person, and his teammates thought that he took too much of it and didn't get enough to them, and so. Yeah, like I said, that kind of plays into the whole, you know, by the time he was done in Brooklyn, he didn't, uh, a lot of his teammates weren't too sad to see him leave. And some of that also stems from the fact that he'd fight with his own teammates and show a lot of emotion on the field and confront them if they made errors behind him. Was he the only guy that did this? I mean, talk about how the game, I mean, and, and, and how personalities were different back then than they are today. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know how common that was to just openly confront a teammate in the middle of a game about a poor play, but Grimes uh, wasn't afraid to do it. That's for sure. And one of the biggest, one of the biggest people that took his, the brunt of his uh, actions was his catcher, Otto Miller. And you know, those two weren't really on speaking terms by the end. And 
Grimes actually ended up having to have a personal catcher uh, at one point. So, yeah, he, you know, <laughs> I don't know how frequent it was for other people to uh, openly confront teammates on the field, but Grimes wasn't afraid to do it. He also had the habit of holding out before a season would begin until he got the dollars he wanted. And he also had a habit of getting off to slow starts. Could you expand on both? Yeah, so of course there weren't agents back then, and uh, there was rarely multi-year contracts. So every year you had to renegotiate contracts. And Grimes, who was wealthy off the field, like I said, had business investments, he was able to kind of dangle that in front of uh, Brooklyn, in front of Ebbets, uh, Charles Ebbets in particular. And so, um, yeah, it seemed like almost every year that he was doing some sort of, uh, he was holding out or report late. And I think that kind of affected his early, you know, his poor or slow starts to the season. He also had a lot of injuries and a lot of ailments, a broken thumb, the torn Achilles, constant battles with the flu, or he he had appendicitis. The list goes on and on. Was there ever an explanation as to why he was always battling something? And, you know, it, it looks like it lasted his whole career. Did he not take care of himself? What was going on here? You know, I, I don't know. But, you know, because he wasn't, a, wasn't a, a, a drinker or a smoker or anything um, of, of sub- substance during his career. And he smoked cigars afterwards and probably smoked them a little bit while he played. But I don't know. He kept very good care of himself, you know, physically. But, yeah, it just seemed like there was always something popping up that, and I don't know if that was at the time, you know, just health at the time, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for the, for the stuff that happened to him to have the career he had is pretty uh, remarkable. Yeah. You know, when I, when I look back, the one guy who comes to mind, obviously a much different pitcher, but one of the guys that comes to mind when I look at Grimes's career record is, Nolan Ryan. And the reason I say that is because Grimes would win 23 games and lose, you know, 19 games. That's sort of like what Nolan Ryan did when he was with the Angels. He would win 24 games, lose 20, win 22, lose 21. I don't think there are a lot of pitchers around that would have nearly as many losses in a 20-win season as a guy like Grimes or later Nolan Ryan. Now, some of Grimes' struggles and some of the reasons he had so many losses was because, well, you know, sometimes it was the team that he played for. They just weren't that good. But was also because of the slow starts. And part of the slow starts, I think, had to be attributed to the fact that he had a habit of tipping off pitches. Can you explain some of what he did to tip off pitches? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a good one. Uh, probably the best one is the ball cap one, where he, um, <laughs> whenever he would, <laughs> you know, Art Fletcher, I think of the Phillies, who had a, a real bad team at the time, but they just killed Grimes and. They finally, he finally, I think it was a bat boy that finally realized that mm-hmm. they were noticing every time he was throwing the spitball, he would move his jaw and this ball cap was too tight. So his, his cap would wiggle and they would see this and, um, they would know that the spitball was coming. And so, uh, once he realized that was the case, he got a little looser hat and that, uh, changed things for him. Fortunately, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that that something like that can actually tip off a batter. Yeah. You know, let's go back to the holdouts. Um, How did his habit of holding out, or did his habit of holding out, ultimately help launch the career of Dazzy Vance, another Hall of Famer? Yeah, that was uh, the 22 season, if I remember correctly, when Vance came to uh, when. um came to Brooklyn. So Robinson was looking for more pitchers and Grimes had held out and 
um, Vance got a chance and, you know, kind of, you know, over the next couple of years, those re- they really had a, a strong one-two pitching combination for Brooklyn and kind of culminating in a mythical 24 season where despite not winning the pennant, it was right down to the last couple of games. And it was led by Grimes and Vance and Bill Doak, another spitballer. Mm-hmm. Can you explain, you know, I, I, I think Grimes came about during the transition from the dead ball era to the livelier ball era, the lively ball era. Can you explain uh, the difference between the two and perhaps how baseball addressed putting more offense into the game? Sure, and so that kind of ties into that 1920 season where when they were trying to do away with trick pitches, they also decided to use more baseballs in a game. Now there's, you know, dozens of balls in a game, but back then there was just one or two they would use. And so um, that's kind of 1920 was when that started. And ironically was, you know, they were trying to clean up the game. That was also when Ray Chapman was killed that season as well when they were doing that. But 20 was kind of the start of the live ball era, so to speak. Babe Ruth was with the Yankees now. Uh, balls started to fly out of the park. Uh, there was talk of the ball. The ball was changing. Uh, uh, you know, a rabbit ball, so to speak, was used. Ba- uh, bats were changing. Larger barrels were being used by players. And so the 1920 season was the beginning of the live ball era. And Grimes performed well. You know, 20 and 20 in 1920, won 23 and 21, he won 22. And so, you know, he's one of the winningest pitchers of that decade. And and teams, I mean, the team batting averages were crazy. I mean, as much offense as there is in the game today, particularly the long ball, team batting averages back in the 20s, I think, were a lot higher than they are today. I mean, there were teams hitting 280. Yeah, it was crazy. It was, uh, boy, I'm look, let me look at it here, you know, the 1920 uh the 22 Brooklyn uh, Robins, they hit, uh, what they hit that year? They hit 290 as a team, and that wasn't wow. even, you know, they were ranked sixth in the league that year. You know, oh, which, man. I mean, it's crazy, yeah. yeah. So in 1923, in this lively ball era, Burley goes 21-18. and 18. He threw 33 complete games, led the National League in innings pitched with 327 and he had a 3.58 ERA. He said it was his best season ever. Why is that? You know, I, I think there's a couple of reasons he was you know just I think with the amount of offense that was going on there and to kind of per- persevere through that and I think it was one of the more satisfying um, seasons for him because of that because despite all of the offense that was going on uh, he won 21 games. Yeah, he lost 18, but uh, yeah, to be able to be one of the better pitchers in the league at that time was satisfying for him. So the Dodgers are trying to put together this team to to win a World Series, and they just can't do it. And no matter what moves they made, they they just couldn't get over the hump. And it seems like they were always looking to trade Burley. Finally... Charles Ebbets, who was the owner of the team, passes away, and it appeared as if the relationship between Burley and Wilbert Robinson and the Robins or Dodgers seemed to grow more and more contentious. Is that true? It definitely wasn't pleasant. Oh, you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. And so they had that real good season in 24 um, where they almost uh, won the pennant. But in 25 and 26, Grimes' uh, play starts to slip. You know, he goes 12 and 19 and 25, 12 and 13 and 26. Um, and that's, you know, to continually fight about contracts, you know, Brooklyn finds is enough. We're just, we're going to trade you. So they end up trading him across town to the New York Giants. And he was quite happy to be traded to the Giants. But this time, his... His time with the Giants only lasted one year, and he had a decent season. So 
I'm not understanding, you know, outside of maybe his age, why did he only last with the Giants for one year, despite the fact he had a pretty good season? Well, he had a, a great season. He loved playing for John McGraw, and he said if he had he had pitched for McGraw's whole career, he would have easily won over 300 games. Uh, he won 270 for his career. And he ended up, I think, winning 13 games in a, in a row at one point for the Giants that year. Mm-hmm. But um, he just couldn't help himself. Once again, he ran himself, you know, kind of wore out his welcome. And those, that Giants team had, I think, eight Hall, future Hall of Famers on it. And uh, Grimes, you know, just like I said, couldn't help himself. They came to a series late in the season against the Pirates, and uh, he got this, his teammates to sign this petition to give to McGraw to say that Grimes should pitch this one game. And if you know anything about McGraw, he doesn't want to be told what to do. And so, uh, you know, after that 27 season, he's traded again because of that. Incredible. A guy who wins 270 games for his career is traded as often as Burley Grimes was. And so he lasts the one year with the New York Giants and he ends up back in Pittsburgh with the Pirates. And he goes 25-14 and 14 his first year with Pittsburgh, 1928. And then an injury-plagued 1929 season, he went 17-7. and seven. He battled thumb injuries. His manager, Johnny, uh, Donnie Bush, resigned and was replaced by a guy by the name of Jewel Enns. He and Grimes did not get along, and off to Boston he goes. He's traded again. And Grimes plays for the Braves for the 1930 season, but his stay didn't last very long. He was 3-5, and and now he's shipped to the Cardinals. Again, here's a guy who is ultimately elected to the Hall of Fame, a guy who won more games in the 1920s, I think, than anyone else, he can't find a home. Joe, what is going on here? <laughs> I, I think, yeah, like I said, he he uh, was pretty good at wearing out his welcome. And those that 28, 29, well, 28 in particular with Pittsburgh, he could have easily won over 30 games if he hadn't uh, hurt his thumb. You know, he, he still ended up bleeding the majors with 25 wins, 48 games, you know, 28 complete, complete games led the entire majors, but wore out as welcome. I always say he was sent to baseball purgatory, the Boston Braves in 1930. And, uh, was fortunately at the trading deadline traded to the St. Louis Cardinals and ended up leading them to the world series that year. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just, I don't have an explanation for why he was traded so much, but I think it's, you know, I think it's just pretty obvious. It was his, his relationship, uh, his inability to get along with people. Incredible. So, yeah, he goes to St. Louis to finish out the uh, 1930 season, and he goes 13-6, and six, and the Cardinals go to the World Series, but they lose to the Philadelphia Athletics, and Grimes goes 0-2 in the series. Then comes along 1931. He has a decent year, a good year, going 17-9. and And once again, the Cardinals play the Athletics in the series. Only this time, the result is much different. And the, the pain and agony that Burley Grimes was going through during this series, from the way you wrote it, it must have been excruciating for him to be out on the mound pitching. Tell us about his time with the Cardinals, particularly the 1931 series, and what was going on with Burley Grimes. So if I, I remember correctly, um, you know, I, I, he had an appendicitis was one of the things, and they were icing him up in his was his sternum that he was having issues with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, just, a what an effort by him in that series. And he went two and oh, including a clinching game seven, where like I said, he was just in agony that entire series and particularly game seven in particular. And was 
having to get iced up every time he went back to the dugout. And, uh, you know, he persevered, and they ended up winning Game 7. He pitched a two-hitter with an appendicitis. Unfortunately, he couldn't finish up the game. I mean, he, yeah. he was he was he was just toast. I mean, he was he had nothing left to give and they had to pull him as as the athletics were making a comeback. But he only gave yeah. up two hits and I mean the perseverance here the fact that he was able to do this was was his time in St. Louis a good time? Talk about um, uh, his time with the Cardinals, and ironically, he becomes a teammate of Frankie Frisch, and they wind up building a lifelong friendship after all that had happened between them. Yeah, those Cardinals team were, were pretty darn good, and Grimes loved his time there, and. You know, being a World Series hero, he thought he was going to kind of ride out the rest of his career with them, and he just missed being part of the Gas House gang. And so he bought this huge acreage of of land in in Missouri, and he probably ends up getting traded to the Chicago Cubs. (laughs) Wow. You know, one of the things you mentioned early on was he was a decent hitter, you know, particularly in the minors. But he was a darn good hitter in the majors. Talk about, you know, throughout all of this, he's winning baseball games as a pitcher, and this guy can hit the ball too. I think there was a couple of years where he might have even hit over 300. Yeah, 1920 he hit 306. Um, in 24 he hit 298. Um, in 28 hit 321. So, yeah, for his career to be a 248 hitter, you know, to uh, – you know, in 1,500 at-bats, to bat 248 as a pitcher is pretty darn good. After his years, you know, I guess following the World Series, he's now 38, and he starts to really bounce around. He goes to the yeah. Cubs, then back to the Cardinals, then the Yankees, then the Pirates again. How effective was he over his final couple of seasons? Well, it was it – was, yeah, I don't know if it was that stuff that happened in the World Series, but by, you know, 32 when he was with the Cubs and they played in the World Series, of course, you know, Babe Ruth called shot, supposedly, which Grimes said never would have happened. Um, you know, he, he was, wasn't too effective those last couple of years. Um, as, he, as you said, he bounced around the league quite a bit and ended up, of all places, with the Pirates. Mm-hmm. One last run with them in 34. Um, let's go back to uh, Babe Ruth. Grimes said that really didn't happen. I guess he, he was Babe Ruth was actually pointing to someone. He really wasn't pointing that he was going to hit a home run. Can you can you can you expand on that at all? Do you recall that sure. story? And it, yeah, and so I, you know, I and I don't know if I if I how I I phrase it in the book. I've talked to Chuck a little bit about it uh, recently, and. Um, so Grimes and and um, one of his teammates, like Charlie Root, were really giving Ruth a hard time from the bench. And there was two strikes on him, and Grimes claimed that he said that he was pointing at him and said, I got one more. I got one more, the big one coming, you know, said one more. So he's pointing over at Grimes in the Cubs dugout, and that's what he said what, what happened there. So, of course, there's been a whole book written about that game and that called shot, so, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, many different stories about that. So, so Burley finally uh, calls it quits, and he bounces around as a coach and a manager, you know, in the majors and the minors, and then he finally becomes manager of the Dodgers in 1937 and 1938. He didn't fare too well. Can you talk about the experience that he had as a manager? What kind of manager yeah, it was, he was? Yeah, it was it was a, a pretty miserable experience for him. Um, and uh, you know, of all things, his bench coach was uh, was Babe Ruth, um, who was trying to get back in the game. And so Ruth was kind of this pregame attraction. Would be hitting home runs you know, batting practice for the game and then be asking Grimes if he could play that night. And so it was a pretty miserable experience for Grimes. And, you know, after that 38 season, he was fired and never managed in the major leagues again. 
how bittersweet was it for him that he's fired and basically, you know, like you said, he never managed in the majors again. What did he do after that? Well, he, he surely wasn't done with uh, with baseball. He spent the next, uh, really the next three decades in the game. He bounced around the minors as a, as a coach, a manager. Um, his last job was as a scout for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, he helped develop those great pitching staffs of Baltimore in the late 60s until he finally retired in 71. Mm-hmm. And bef- before he retired in 71... He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1964. Does anything in particular stand out about his induction? Yeah, you know, that's, and there was a long time where he really wasn't on the radar to be into the Hall of Fame, and, and Ty Cobb, towards the end of his life, kind of made it his mission to get certain players that he thought belonged in the Hall of Fame into the Hall of Fame, and Grimes was one of Cobb's favorite players and so he really pushed for that, and uh, there was some, some momentum, and he was finally voted in by the Veterans Association in 64. He won 270 games. He played for such a long time. Is part of that 270 wins a fact of just being around and compiling numbers, or do you think he truly was a Hall of Fame pitcher? You know, I I, I, I struggle with this for a long time, and you know, I, I think that 270 is part of longevity. Uh, you know, his last uh, really, you know, two, you know, three, four seasons weren't that great. You know, so he didn't pile on many stats at the end there. But I always go back to his ranking in the 1920s for where he sat statistic wise and, you know, the winningest pitcher of the decade and all that stuff. And I think that first decade of the live ball era and his success really solidifies his hall of fame uh, entrance. And, you know, there was some discussion of, you know, the veterans committee, he was getting voted in by his contemporaries and they were maybe playing some favorites, but no, I, I think he was a hall of famer. Mm-hmm. Hey, Joe, in all your research, what surprised you most about Burley Grimes? Hmm. I, you know, I think we talked about it a lot here, just the amount of of time, times he was on, went to different teams. I think, you know, going into it, you know, I always consider myself knowing a lot about baseball, and I started writing seriously, and I realized how little I did know. And so I think the amount of teams he was on seven different teams, you know, it's, there's very few hall of famers that were on that many teams. Maybe Ricky Henderson is up there. You know, I think he, I don't know if Henderson was on nine, 10 teams or something like that, but it surprised me how often Grimes bounced around Mm -hmm. and the success he had with different, the success he had with different teams, you know? So, Mm -hmm. well, Joe, I want to thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Your book, Burley Grimes, Baseball's Last Legal Spitballer. If someone wanted to get a copy, where could they get, you know, where could they go to get one? Well, if you'd like to uh, order it right from me, you can go to my website, joeneese.com, J-O-E-N-I-E-S-E.com. I'd be happy to autograph a copy and send it off to you. Otherwise, it's on Amazon. You want to go that route, or you can go directly from my publisher, McFarland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how's your book uh, about Gus Duray doing? It's going well. Yeah, it's it's going well. We'll see how things go once uh, football season starts here. That always seems to uh, reinvigorate the the market there when that season comes around. And I'm working on a book about Zach Wheat, one of Grimes' teammates, right now. And so, Very uh, cool. Well, you'll have to let us know when that book comes out. I think that Zach would make a great, great topic for sports forgotten heroes. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying writing about writing about him. He's, it's another guy where it's like how those names that slip through the crack. I mean, Weed is still atop most of the batting numbers for the Dodgers franchise, and he's just one of those people that just not many people know about. So, I'm enjoying telling his story. Awesome. Again, Joe, thanks so much for uh, joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I look forward to having you back again sometime uh, in the future. Thanks, Warren. Appreciate it. Always enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. 
Grimes finished his career the same place he started it, with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Overall, he won 270 games and lost 212 with a career ERA of 3.53. Five times he won 20-plus games, threw 314 complete games, and recorded 35 shutouts. But it was his demeanor on the field that earned him his reputation as one of baseball's fiercest competitors, a demeanor that helped him win as a player, but not so much as a manager. Grimes tried managing but didn't meet with much success. He was at the helm of the Dodgers for two seasons, 1937 and 1938, but neither year ended on the plus side as the Dodgers went 62-91 and and followed that with a 69-80 and season. Burley stayed in the game as a coach and in other capacities afterwards, but he never got the opportunity to manage in the majors again. I'd like to thank our guest, Joe Neese, once again for joining us. His book, Burley Grimes, Baseball's Last Legal Spitballer, can be found on Amazon, or you can go to joeneese.com. That's J-O-E-N-I-E-S-E.com to order it there and check out the other books Joe has written as well. I'd also like to thank all of you for listening and to remind you to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or our website, sportsfh.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.